0: Right. Um, Good evening, everyone joining us here in person, everyone joining us online. Welcome to another evening lecture with Francis Tavern Museum. Remember, if you are joining us virtually, if you have any questions, please feel free to drop them in the Q&A box or in the chat. I'll be monitoring that throughout the lecture, so don't worry about saving it to the end. Put it in there so you don't forget. Um, in person, I do ask that you wait till the end, and we have time for our Q&A, um, and we'll make sure we'll go back and forth, get to as many as we can in the time allotted. Uh, and as always, this lecture is being recorded and will be available in a few days. If you register, it will be sent to you. It'll be available on our website, on our YouTube, so you can share it with people who couldn't be here tonight or re-listen to it, re-watch it as much as you'd like. All right, so let's get started. As always, the views of the speaker are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York or its Francis Tavern Museum. Let me introduce tonight's speaker. Frederica Baer is Associate Professor of History and Division Head for Arts and Humanities at Pennsylvania State University, Abington College. Originally from Germany, Baer holds a PhD in Early American History from Brown University. Much of her research has focused on the experiences of German-speaking people in North America in the period of the War for American Independence and the Early Republic. Her work has been supported by organizations such as the American Philosophical Society, University of michigan Clements Library, German Academic Exchange Service, and the Society of the Cincinnati. Her publications include the monographs, the trial The Trial of Frederick Everly, Language, Patriotism, and Citizenship in Philadelphia's German Community 1790 to 1830, and what we'll be hearing about tonight, Hessians, German Soldiers in the American Revolutionary War. I am now going to turn it over to our speaker. Great.
1: Thank you so much for this uh, great introduction um thank you sarah for inviting me to be here today at francis tavern tavern it's it's really an honor um i i i've never been here before in this building and it's a a pleasure to be here and share my research about the german soldiers about in the revolutionary war uh, with you all Um, i was told that there were more than 300 people registered to join us remotely which is exciting and if you are out there wherever you are maybe even germany um Welcome, and um, I'm really happy to have you all here this evening. Um, I would like to say a few general words about who these German soldiers and civilians were, these thousands of troops that we know as Hessians, and how they ended up in North America. And then I will give a few, what I would call, snapshots um, of their experiences over the course of the war. So a very brief introduction. In the 1770s and 1780s, as many as 40,000 German soldiers were hired to defend British imperial interests on four continents, in America, on Gibraltar in Menorca, in India, and in South Africa. The vast majority, at least 30,000, saw service in North America. In August 1776, a German periodical known as the Deutsche Chronik, or the German Chronicle, noted optimistically that and I quote soon the English will have to thank the Germans a second time for the conquest of America. The editor was here alluding to William Pitt's famous statements uh, referring to Germans role in the seven years war about a decade earlier. A war that as I'm sure many of you know resulted in France ceding a large portion of its territorial possessions in North America along the several Caribbean islands to England or to Britain. Early that same year, 1776, Britain's Prime Minister Lord North had predicted that the hire of the German auxiliaries would bring the war to a speedy resolution without, as he put it, the further effusion of blood. Of course, we know now that neither of these predictions came true. The steady of supply of Germans, in fact, helped keep the war going for another seven years. Before I continue, I would like to emphasize that by 1780, 81, in other words, four or five years into the war, one third of the British regular army strength consisted of German auxiliaries. So this was not just a few soldiers, this was a significant proportion of the British Army North America during that war. Let me also emphasize a couple of additional points before I continue. Britain's employment of foreign soldiers was nothing unusual. Britain fought most of its uh, late 17th century and all of its major 18th century battles or wars with the help of foreign auxiliaries. And Britain was not unique in hiring foreign soldiers to fight its wars. France, Prussia, Russia, the United provinces of the, of the Netherlands, they all employed foreign soldiers at one time or another. And in fact, the eight, in the 18th century, the typical European army was a multinational force. Second, the trade in soldiers, as it is sometimes called, was an acceptable form of revenue for many smaller territories, including the six German territories that ultimately, essentially rented out their soldiers to Britain. It was a way to earn or to make revenue. In some of these cases, the rulers used the revenue to support lavish lifestyles. And this, this of course, earned them a a lot of criticism for, quote unquote, selling their subject, quote, like cattle to have their throats cut, as the King of Prussia put it in a very well-known letter to the French philosopher Voltaire. But they also used the revenue to pay off territorial debt and to fund projects that were designed to benefit the territories generally, such as the construction of villages, hospitals, museums, roads, and the like. In fact, even the King of Prussia, Frederick the Great, had to admit that hiring of troops was a practical way to raise revenue if the territory was facing serious deaths, like, for example, the territory of, of Braunschweig did at the time. In addition, subsidy treaties should also be seen as political measures that allowed the rulers of smaller territories within the Holy Roman Empire to maintain a certain degree of power and influence. And in some cases, preserve their dynastic interests and gain protection from foreign powers. Several of the German rulers that ended up hiring out their subjects to King George III were related to them. The hereditary Prince of Braunschweig, for example, who co-ruled with his father until 1780, then he took over as sole ruler over the territory of braunschweig wolfenbuttel He was married to Augusta of Hanover, the oldest sister of King George III, making the king the Duke's brother-in-law. And the Landgraf of Hessen was married to one of George II's granddaughters, Mary. Finally, these soldiers were not Mercenaries. They're often referred to as mercenaries, when you Google them Hessians, you will find references, plenty of references to Hessian mercenaries. And there is no doubt that there were individual soldiers in these corps that meet our definition of mercenary. However, mercenaries are soldiers who fight in a foreign army or war for personal profit. These regiments that we're talking about today and that are referred to as Hessians are better described as auxiliary troops. They were hired out as corps, as regiments, intact, so to speak, with their own commanders. The troops were raised by the German rulers. So how did they end up in the war in America? Well, in the spring of 75 Britain faced a very challenging task, and that is or that was to raise a substantial army or military force that could be dispatched to America quickly. For various reasons, the king was not able to raise these troops at home in Britain or in other parts of the British empire, even though of course he raised some troops at home in in other places of the empire. He did what he, again, as I mentioned already, had done many times before, he turned to foreign rulers for support. In fact, he first turned to Russia He hoped to hire 20,000 Russian troops for various reasons. The Tsarina, Catherine, turned them down. He then tried to use what was known as the Scots Brigade, a brigade that had been in Dutch service for several decades. The Netherlands, the, the, the ruler wavered, wasn't sure about it. Ultimately, that didn't work out. By the summer of 1775, several, possibly even according to French intelligence, already in 74, several German rulers had already offered troops to King George, had written them letters and saying like, you know, if you need troops, we have them, it would be an honor, you know, we're dedicated to your cause, if you would consider that. In the fall of 75, the king then is beginning to seriously exploring that possibility. Again, that was not shocking really, he had done it many times before ultimately six german territories agreed to rent out troops to the king and i I highlighted them here on that on that map um with the the approximate number of the total numbers of soldiers that ended up serving in north america um so the initial contracts or treaties we call them subsidy treaties that were signed did not include these numbers but over the course of the war of course there were replacement and reinforcements, so the numbers increased. So, the Valdeck, for example, sent one regiment, the so called Third Waldeck Regiment, into, Amer- into British service. Um, the number was maybe 750, something like that. Ultimately, though, replacements drove that number of men from Waldeck that served in America up to about 12, 12, 12, 25. As you can see on this map, the largest number of men came from Hessen Castle. Hessen Hano at the time was ruled over by the hereditary prince of Hessen Kassel, two separate territories. But because so many of these soldiers came from there, um, we have referred to these troops collectively as Hessians. And that started already in the 1770s. And I think it was meant of, and also as a pejorative term the Hessians. There are certain images att- attached to the Hessians, who they were, Hessian merc- mercenaries. Many of these individuals were not actually Hessians. And I think when they, they would have never referred to themselves as Hessians. So something just to keep in mind. We um, use the term, but it 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 creates, I think it simplifies what it, what in fact was a very diverse group of individuals from very different territories throughout um, German-speaking Europe. Germany, of course. I don't think i need to mention it but maybe i should <laughs> just in case germany of course didn't ex- exist at the time these territories are part of the holy um, roman empire here's something for, for all of you who like spreadsheets <laughs> uh, uh, and i don't expect you to be able to make this out in any way but i, I do want to just uh, mention you know uh, when you when you think about these subsidy treat- treaties Uh, And I mentioned there are various reasons why rulers might enter into them. But at the end of the day, it is a financial transaction. These rulers renting out soldiers or troops entire regiments, and in return, they get money from Britain. The rulers get paid annual subsidies. Of course, no one knows in 1776, when these first treaties are signed, how long the war will last. But the treaties usually said, we're going to give you the king or Britain will pay subsidies every year while the troops are in service, and then usually a year or two afterwards sort of to wrap things up. Individual soldiers, of course, were paid. And the, the pay um, that they were getting was consistent with the British pay, which was fairly good for the time. That was clearly also meant as an incentive for soldiers to hopefully volunteer for service. Because it was ultimately financial transaction, <clears throat> the bookkeeping was <laughs> incredible. And that's one reason I think why we have a lot of records um, that really detail um, who these people were, when they're served, and their numbers, records like this. Um, this happens to be a regiment from Braunschweig, but I just put it up just really to illustrate, you know, what was involved here, you know, the, the reporting, the counting, the accounting for people. Are they there? Have they deserted? Have they died? Have they returned? Do we need more? ultimately, that needed to be settled. Um, these kind of things needed to be settled with, with Britain. So who were these? Who were these soldiers? The image, I think, is one uh, of, uh, again, I mentioned already, mercenaries, um, the men who go there uh, for personal profit, go to America for personal profit. And that probably was the case, again, from some, you know, some, for some of these individuals. There's also the image out there that they were forced into service, they were made drunk, somehow trickery played a big role in recruiting the soldiers. This also no doubt happens. Officially, however, these men were supposed to volunteer for service. Officially, recruiters were not supposed to force men against their will to serve in this American war. At that time, the German territories did not have drafts in the modern sense. What they did ha- usually do is they had some sort of enrollment lists or sort of canton systems, as they were called, where officials would draw up lists of eligible men in their territories or in their villages and their regions, and then they would kind of be, you know, be- request these men to be put for mustering, they would be measures and measured, and then they would be either deemed fit for service or not. Um, some of these soldiers or these men that ultimately ended up in these regiments had military experience, which of course was desirable, and it's always good to have someone who's maybe fired a gun before, for example. Most of these soldiers probably had never done that. So that's, I think, an important point to keep in mind as well when we're thinking about this war and warfare. When we think about American soldiers, I think, or the American army, we often have this image of sort of the citizen soldier, right, who takes up arms and defends of a a cause. Many of these men presumably inexperienced in warfare. I think that's not that different here when we're looking at the Hessians. There are many of men who were recruited into this war. Um, They did not necessarily object to military service, but they probably did object to serving in a war on another continent against an enemy who had done them no harm. That was a first. So even though Brit- Germans had served in British been in British service before, they had never been used outside of Europe. So that is definitely something that they had to get used to. Many of these were not experienced soldiers. I put this document up here to kind of illustrate this. waldeck as I said, Waldeck sent One regiment into American service. Valdeck's tiny territory. What Valdeck did is essentially we called roughly 200 men that were already in Dutch service at the time. They were either what was known as the first or the second Valdeck regiment. They recalled. They pulled these 200 soldiers out, and this is a certificate that certifies here that a soldier was taken from these regiments in order to be placed in the so-called third a regiment that was going to North America. So about 200 men had served in, Dutch, in the Dutch military century before, but the other four or 500 had to be specially recruited for service in America. That was not an unusual kind of situation. All territories used um, what we call exemptions um, and certain criteria that would render a man eligible for service or would render him ineligible. So they all had to obviously ideally be physically fit to withstand a military campaign in North America. Height was important, although these criteria were relaxed as the war went on and it was got harder and harder to recruit soldiers. Um, ideally, they were unmarried, uh, single, um, no children. They didn't really have dependents the that they had to care for. they also were supposed to not be only sons, for example, or due to inherit property, or work in essential industries in the mines, for example, or be a university student or be an apprentice. In other words, there are certain occupations. If the man occupied any of them, he's not supposed to go to America. If he was one of many sons, perhaps, or a younger son or a poor man Unattached, uh, you know, maybe even a troublemaker, you know, sort of the, the town drunk. Um, then he was definitely eligible to go to America. And these men often were added to these lists of, of ca- perfect candidates. We do have in the archives letters from families, uh, wives uh, in particular, or in-laws, who appealed to the authorities and asked to have a, a, a husband. Or a son-in-law sent to America because he was, for example, drinking too much, or he was a threat to his daughters, or he was a no-good, lazy individual who did not contribute anything to the you know, support of, of his family. There literally appeals from families to, in Hessen to the Landgraf, and can you please take this man uh, out, out of my hands. In some cases, local authorities were perfectly happy to do that. They agreed. It's like, this man was better off, you know, more, more use of the territory if being t- sent him to America. Petty thieves, you know, petty criminals often were uh, also targeted for this kind of service. These appeals did not always work. Um, and uh, there's one case, for example, where a woman writes um, a letter to a local authorities and said, my, my husband, um, he is um, no good, uh, free us from this evil man, he writes in her letter, turns out that this individual is a, what's a wig maker. And uh, neighbors in that town wrote when they heard hurt that, you know, his family is trying to get rid of them to the authorities and said, yeah, there might be trouble in this relationship. That's between them. And the white is probably, you know, to blame for some of this as well. But he is the only wig maker in town.
2: Yeah.
1: And we'd really like to keep him here. And that's exactly what happened. The authorities ultimately agreed. So when you look at this, there are many cases sort of like that, variations of this. When you look at it that way from the territorial's perspective, it's like what what use is this man? Is he useful at home? Is he contributing? Is he supporting the economy, the the territorial economy, whatever? If the answer is yes, definitely, we need him home, he was less likely to be recruited. If the answer was, well, actually, we get more use out of him if he goes to America, more likely to be sent. And I am generalizing because at the end of the day, it was very difficult to raise the core. So there, um, amongst these troops are many men who were needed at home who were taking care of their families, who did leave behind wives and small children, or in-laws, or the widowed mothers, who had depended on them for their livelihoods. So we do have in the files, in the archives, uh, also many letters to rulers and local authorities begging for their their husband or their father or their brother not to be sent to America, so. There certainly created uh, quite a lot of hardship, um, the departure of, of these individuals. As I mentioned, the men that were supposed to volunteer, um, uh, when, how we define volunteering is, is tricky. What is a volunteer exactly? For example, if you are facing economic hardship at home, if you don't see much of a future for, you, for yourself at home, if you were maybe tricked into signing up, if you, there's peer pressure, maybe you don't get along with your parents, whatever, uh, you know, it, it becomes difficult to talk about volunteering when there's potentially all these forces or some of these forces at play. So I just want to point that out. Uh, ultimately, we think that many of these people did not volunteer because something is going on in their lives that made service in America a more attractive option than staying at home. Here's are recruiting certificates. Um, I just translated sort of the key information. One reason why I wanted to show this to you is, uh, first of all, I think it's incredibly interesting that these certificates were printed. Obviously, there's great need for these kind of forms, so they printed them. Um, but there's also what I also find interesting about this particular one, which is a brown uh, is that it was it dates to 1782. Um, when we hear about the American Revolutionary War, we often think uh, or hear or typical textbooks end with Yorktown, um, fall of 1781, the last major battle of the Revolutionary War is sort of over. Well, when we focusing on the German troops, their presence in North America and, uh, and for how long they were recruited, we get a little bit of a different impression the British recruited German auxiliaries into early 1783. The large, large major shipment leaves in the winter of 1782. So, this guy, this is in gets recruited and he may have ended up in North America. This is long after Yorktown. So, it makes you wonder sometimes what Britain had in mind here. Um, where were these people supposed to head? Are they, did they think maybe there was another campaign that, that would have been possible? So I think this is an interesting. The other important point I think that I want to mention here is the bounty of five tala, roughly one pound at the time. The servants wages were maybe one and a, or one and a half talas a month at that time. So for a, for a man to get a bounty of five, five tala, five tala, that's an incentive. That's quite attractive. I mean, that's money that he's just getting um, just for signing up. And that's clearly meant to, to entice people to go. Now, were there reasons why a young man in the Holy Roman Empire would have wanted to go to North America? There certainly were many reasons. It's, it's like I think in any other time, military service more does create opportunities. Um, There were certainly young men who were looking for a career in the military and to really make significant advancements in peacetime is challenging. So war does offer opportunity for advancement, officers in particular, really clamored to go to America because they were hoping for promotions ultimately. But not just officers, some men who who were, you know, started in the private ranks also for promotion. Um, Search uh, uh, for adventure. Uh, You know, the desire to see a place, a a different continent, that was at the time really still very much inaccessible to many Germans. Um, North America uh, was not that well known in terms of what's happening there, the land and the people. Certainly knowledge about the war was extremely limited. An estimated 80,000 Germans had emigrated from Holy Roman Empire to North America or the British colonies by the time of the revolution. But their presence in North America did not mean that mo- many people back home in Europe knew much about this fascinating, what they are called, new world. So we have some individuals who specifically sign up to explore, essentially. Um, and he is on the right is a publication by one scientist. Uh, we would call him now a scientist, Chef, who does that. He signs up with the, uh, he was actually um, looking to go to South Asia at the time when he heard there was this opportunity to go to America and he signed up, he went, he explored the American land of the people. He, he, he uh, published several books and pamphlets. He an example about vegetation, essentially North American vegetation. His name is David. Sure. On the left is an example of a letter that was published during the war already in a very popular periodical in Germany. So we have also writings by mostly officers who are not scientists in a modern sense of the world, but who are very curious about what North America is like. And they spend a lot of time, some of them, exploring the countryside and visiting museums and you know, looking for mammoth bones and things like that, collecting fossils, and, uh, and, and uh, they wrote things down, send it back to Germany specifically for publication. I mentioned this because the soldiers, they're coming to North America. they obviously have an impact on the war. But they also have an impact on their home communities, and one of the consequences is the sharing of knowledge. Um, The writings, the publications, they're also collected objects. General Kniphausen, who is the commander of the Hessian forces, himself ordered Hessian regiments to keep detailed records, detailed journals of each and every occurrence during their campaigns, and they collect specifically Native American artifacts and then bring them back home. And we have in, the, in, an, in an archive in Castle a, a small receipt that mentions that he himself brought home to a professor there, a sugar cane and a small pouch with crystals. So the Hessian commander himself collected objects as well and brought them back home. So all of this, the writings, Images, drawings, objects help broaden the knowledge of North America and the war in Europe. Um, And and in some ways, I think these soldiers acted like almost like foreign correspondents. The soldiers they were uh, recruited obviously in their own territories, transported to ports in Germany and in uh, the Netherlands, then taken over to England and from there especially in 76, massive troop transport, they were sent to North America. I'm gonna skip over this part. There's a lot of that in my book, because it's, as you can imagine, a a massive logistical complicated undertaking. I want to put this map up as a kind of a reminder too, that the German troops participated in every major battle in the American Revolutionary War. And, and pretty much every minor one as well, with the exception of the battles uh, in the West. Um, so there are a couple of, of campaigns that they were not part of. I'm emphasizing this because when we hear about the Hessians, we often kind of reduce them to a couple of major encounters. most famously, of course, Trenton, right? Most of you probably heard of Trenton. And there's the reason for this, a, 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 a significant American victory, kind of a turning point, morale boosting, all you the know, Washington, this that amazing crossing of the Delaware, uh, and then taking um, maybe as many as 1,000 Hessians uh, captive Christmas, about a Christmas day on, on trend. So that is truly sensational, but the vast majority of German soldiers were not at Trenton and did not take part in this at all. So it is an important event, but it is not representative of the experience of the troops in the war. The the campaigns that are highlighted here on the map include the Canadian campaign, of course, Burgorn's ill-fated journey into New York um, that ended with the Battle of Saratoga in 77 where several thousand German troops were um, taken prisoner. And then we have, of course, before that, the New York and New Jersey campaigns. I put fall 76 kind of dot, dot, because as you all well know, New Jersey's British headquarters for the entire war, there's fighting going on for not just in 76, the occupation of Philadelphia, the Southern campaign, of course, Yorktown. And then last but not least, the presence of British and German troops in West Florida, West Florida that had remained loyal to Britain. So that was not one of the rebellious colonies. All of these campaigns, and again, these are just the major ones, all of them included large numbers of German troops. Um, so we have to remember that. we can't just think of Trenton, maybe Saratoga, maybe Yorktown. They actually involved in all of them including West Florida, which I think gets overlooked in most accounts of the Revolutionary War. So let me just give you a couple of, tell a little talk a little bit about what it was like for them. Um, when they came here, when the troops came here, the first contingent actually um, left in, in, in the spring, they had to be assembled and sent within a matter of weeks. So the first leave in the spring of 76, the first ones actually arrived in Canada. Um, But then in the summer, uh, in August, and then later in October, two divisions of Hessians arrive in New York. And this is here memorialized nice engraving by a German artist. And he, um, we know from German records, and we have a a lot of German records, that they were very impressed with the city and with the country around it. Um, They admired um, the architecture, they admired the the buildings, um, they talk about major roads, um, they're especially impressed with the, with the fertile land, the farms, the orchards, um, they are just really uh, believe that they had to basically, when they arrived, for example, on Long Island, they, they'd stepped, uh, set a foot on the garden of all of North America. It's just, especially from a, a German perspective, the abundance was just truly amazing. Sadly, and this kind of goes hand in hand now with initial impressions, sadly the prosperity seemed to have corrupted the inhabitants. Indeed, the view of the land was so favorable that many of the German observers speculated that the reason for the rebellion could not possibly be oppression by the mother country, as the Americans were claiming. From their perspective, the colonists had little reason to complain. If anything, many had become lazy and decadent. Lieutenant Johann Henrich Henkelmann remarked in a letter to Castle that the white inhabitants of New Jersey, and I quote, lived like pigs. They drank and ate several meals a day, and the women spent their time waiting for their tea and decorating their homes. The evident abundance of goods also encouraged Americans to be extremely wasteful with what the Germans considered to be very valuable resources like firewood, for example. Most Germans could not fathom why such a prosperous people would take up arms against the benevolent king under whose watch they had obviously done so well. The Germans concluded, therefore, that the rebellion must have been the work of a few conspirators of selfish and sinister intentions who were deluding the American people into believing that they were struggling from liberty from oppression. A few evil men, committee men, as one has put it, were conspiring to make themselves masters of the people under the pretense of fighting for freedom. One Hessian chaplain actually mentioned in a letter to Kassel, if there was a people in America that should be struggling for their liberty, it would be black people. The evident wealth of the New York region contrasted starkly
2: with the desolation
1: that the rebels had brought to their own country. Without the proper British oversight, so it seemed to the Germans, the nation's prosperity was rapidly declining. Now, remember when they arrived in New York, the war had been going on for more than a year. So when they're arriving in some of these regions that they're gonna wanna see over the fall of 76, they do see a lot of destructions. They were shocked by the extent of destruction, particularly of civilian properties in the New York region. They found villages abandoned, Homes plundered, cattle killed, fields burned. Not surprisingly, the population that was hit hardest were people that were or were suspected to be loyal to the crown. The Americans' treatment of the civilian population helped create an image of them as undisciplined and unprincipled. And I think this experience also helps explain at least in the early phase of the war, why the German troops saw themselves as liberators rather than occupiers. And they were often confused when they arrived in, in, in different regions and cities by the people were not welcoming them accordingly. Confirmation that the Americans were really basically vengeful fanatics came uh, soon after the Germans' arrival in America with the great fire, um, of New York as it became known, that was set in September of 1776, so mere weeks after the arri- arrival of the first division. Hessians were convinced that the fire, which destroyed about a quarter or so of the city, that the fire had been set by the Americans. The Hessian officer Andreas Wiederhold was shocked, and I quote, that the evil and disobedient rebels were deliberately destroying their blessed land and habitations. Another observer said, the evil sentiments of this nation are indescribable. They were destroying the nicest regions in the entire world. And over the next few years, the view of a fanatical enemy was reinforced over and over again as German troops saw burned and pillaged homes fields and forests, in other regions as well, including Maryland, Pennsylvania, the Carolinas, Virginia, and Georgia. And ultimately, these experiences combined with military setbacks also raised doubts in the minds of the German soldiers, whether the enemy could in fact be crushed given their stubborn determination to defeat Britain. They were obviously willing to sacrifice everything in defense of their cause, And As time went on, there was no indication that this resistance was diminishing. At one point, a Hessian officer said that as long as the Congress can raise 1,000 men, they will not give up. Initially, however, the Germans did not have much respect for the Americans as a worthy enemy. As I mentioned before, many German soldiers were young men who had been recruited specifically uh, for the war in America. They were not necessarily more experienced in warfare than their American counterparts, so to speak. But from the perspective of someone who belonged to a highly hierarchical and disciplined army that stressed the neat and orderly appearance of all of its members, from private to general, the Americans didn't even seem to look like soldiers. Here's an image of the von Knipphausen regiment. That's one of the regiments that was at Trenton. For example, German soldiers were either clean-shaven or they wore neatly groomed mustaches, which you can see. I think it's nicely depicted here in this image. Many of the Americans were described by the Hessians as unshaven, thus giving the, them the appearance of one Hessian called a Spitzbuben or a scoundrel rather than soldiers. Shortly after his arrival on Long Island, a Hessian officer wrote in a letter to Kassel that he did not have a razor, he was embarrassed that at times he had a beard like a rebel. The Hessian troops moreover, were were very well uniformed, at least in the beginning or the early phase of the war. Uh, They were very proudly wore uniforms with, with colors that identified them as members as belonging to particular military units. They found that many Americans were dressed in, dressed in rag, in torn rags of different colors, or miserable outfits, typically worn by poor farmers. And they brought their own guns to, to battle instead of carrying some kind of standard-issue weapons. For the most part, then they found that American soldiers don't didn't just look undisciplined, but they also seemed to act undisciplined and lack loyalty. From the German perspective, and this is especially true in the fall of 1776, when we, I'm sure you know, things did not really go that well for the Americans. From the Hessian perspective, the typical American soldier was a coward who ran at the first sight of the enemy. Washington's retreats that we now celebrate are strategically really smart. His refusal to meet the British in large scale battles, Hessian thought, were not based on strategic decisions. Rather, they were due to the spinelessness of his soldiers. Basically, he had no no choice. They were taking off. Some officers even contemptuously compared the war to a hunt. According to the Chapman Becker, who I already mentioned earlier, the Hessians were charging after, as he put it, the countless bands of gypsies. That's how he described the American troops and at the Battle of Harlem Heights in the fall of 76, the American Colonel Joseph Reed was enraged when British and Hessians, quote, sounded their bugles in the most insulting manner as is usual after a fox chase. One exception to this unflattering view of the American military were the riflemen, but even these troops were regarded with some ambivalence. While most Germans feared and respected these, I want to call them sharpshooters, their effectiveness as soldiers was limited in part by how long it took them to reload their weapons. They were really just effective if they were surrounded, they were in surroundings such as woods um, where they could hide between trees like hunters. And that was criticized. By many of these Hessian observers. The strategy of ambushing an unsuspecting enemy may have been effective, but it was also described as dishonorable. In 1777, a private, we do have a few records written by privates, wrote to his parents in Hessian that the Americans were not like regular soldiers, but rather, and I quote, more like robbers and thieves and that they hide in hedges and bushes and shoot so well when they are able that they hit every time. I should mention that the counterpart, the German counterpart of these riflemen were the what we know called the Jäger, which is a German word for hunter. These were hunters and gamekeepers in Germany that were specifically recruited also for this war and uh, turned out to be particularly useful uh, in, in, in North America. So in general, then at least in the first couple of campaigns, the Hessians regarded the Americans as an inexperienced, undisciplined and poorly equipped enemy that they were chasing most of the time. As one officer put it, it was fortunate that they were fighting against a nation that was unfamiliar with real warfare. It took the Germans a while to abandon this preconceived notion about the proper appearance and behavior of an army. The Germans created a huge volume of records, both public and private, um, that documents their experiences in North America. And my uh, study, um, uh, my book, is la- based largely on this archival material. So it is very much an effort to really understand what it was like for these soldiers to be here and to kind of tell the story of the Revolutionary War, tell their story, so to speak. The records that I s- just put up on the slides here are, include a letter. I include uh, the middle one um, with, with that cute heart. is a regimental journal by the regiment von von Bose, which was uh, uh, is famous for the, the participation in the Southern Campaign. Um, we have a lot of maps drawn by soldiers, some post-battle, this is clearly post-battle, it looks like a great piece of art, um, some more sketchy sort of doing battle or preparation of battle, and then we have embarkation lists and master rolls. and we also have some uh, published material. So taken together, this really should, uh, throws, uh, sheds new light, I think, on the war, not just on what it was like for these soldiers and civilians, but also on the war, generally. And I just want to highlight three of these records Um, to tell you a little bit what I mean by that. The first one is a a private letter that was written by a uh, Braunschweig officer who is in Canada. His name is Albert Du Roy. Um, And he uh, spent uh, many years in Canada. Um, He is some of the time bored. Um, he has this clearly homesick. We know this from other letters. He, he complains often that he hasn't heard from anyone in Germany or even from fellow soldiers somewhere else in North America, in some cases in years. It's very isolating to be out there. This is a letter that he wrote to his brother. His brother was a physician back in Braunschweig. It's, it's about three pages plus this one which you can see is a sheet that was used then ultimately to create, to fold around, to create an envelope. But he filled, wanted to fill every available inch, essentially, he filled the two margins around the, his, the address as well. And on the right, I included a map that indicates where he was located um, at that time. The letter is interesting because uh, I think it's very rich. He writes, uh, so again, it's a private letter. He had been, when he writes his letter in 1781, he had been in Canada or in North America for five years. At that time, he's one of an estimated 5,000 Germans that are stationed in Canada. Um, And uh, by when I say Canada, what I I really mean is Quebec, and what I really mean is essentially along the St. Lawrence River, mostly between Quebec. and and Montreal. I mean, that's really where European settlement was concentrated and that's where these troops are quartered for most of the time. In this letter, he uh, mentions that he's happy that he was recently moved to a new post because where he is now, lod he argues his regiment will be of more use. Um, We know that the Americans did not attack Canada after the ill-fated attempt in in 75, before the Germans even arrived there, but the Germans don't know that then. So when he is there, and when these 5,000 other Germans are stationed there, they are on constant alert. They do not know that maybe the Americans might not make another attempt on Canada. And of course, by this time, France had entered the war on the American side, so there is that added threat as well from potentially the French fleet. So when he writes, he's not writing like I'm sitting around boards, nothing to do. He's like, I'm here, you know, we're stationed here, we're isolated, we don't really know what's going on in the war, honestly, because we have received communication, but I'm happy now I'm at a place where the regiment can be of more, more use. We can defend the province should there be an attack. He also talks a little bit about the environment. Um, this is a rugged environment, very unfamiliar to the Germans. It's very mountainous. The water, the, map, the the rapids in the rivers famous, of course. Soldiers had to learn to navigate them in what were called the bateaux, uh, those vessels that they used. And he mentions to his brother, and this part I thought was interesting. he says every German soldier at this point had learned how to march and do drills wearing snowshoes. And he says, you know, to his brother, picture that for a moment. Picture, imagine that. You countrymen going out on patrol. Every patrol is accompanied by at least 50 Native Americans and they're wearing snowshoes. Every one of them is wearing, them is wearing snowshoes. And they're racing with these Native American allies, they're racing in snowshoes, they're racing with the best of them. And he says to his brother in Germany, imagine that for a moment. It's astonishing to him that he, where he is, and that that's what German soldiers are doing, they've learned to do it. he also says that despite the harsh winters, despite the isolation, that he's never been as healthy in his life now that he's gotten used to the climate. And I think a little joke or you know, teasing his brother, again, the brother physician, he says, I'm also really healthy because I have not had any medical care in a number of years. No medicine to make me sick. So uh, he he feels, uh, he feels pretty good, basically. Um, and he also says, "I have no, I, I have no idea when the war will be over, and when or if we'll ever return to Germany." So it's a very detailed personal letter. Mixed There's also a lot of uh, asking about how our siblings are doing, um, but it is, it is one experience, uh, representative, I think, of, of again a large number of soldiers who were in Canada. And then the other uh, document that I want to share uh, deals with, uh, it's related to prisoners of war. Um, that prisoner captivity was a common experience for German soldiers. Um, we, we estimate that between five and 6,000 soldiers were, uh, became captives, American prisoners, as a result of uh, uh, five or six events alone. And that's of course trend. It's in 76, it's Bennington in the fall of 77, Saratoga in 77, Yorktown in 1781, and then this event, the capture of two transports off the coast of New York in September of 1779. These transports carried German troops from New York, they were destined to Canada, to Quebec. Many of these troops had recently been released from captivity. They had actually been taken at Trenton. Shortly after their departure from the port of New York, they sailed into a massive storm. And as a result of the storm, one of the vessels sank, taking more than 200 men, women, and children with it. They died. Two of the vessels were so damaged and they essentially just started drifting around until they were ultimately captured by American capers. Um, and so one of the officers that is part of that, his name is Andreas Wiederholz, Bid- he kept the diary and on the right are his drawings from the diary, sort of a before and after picture of the vessel that he was on the Triton. When he says that they were captured and the, all of these troops then re-entered captivity, including Wiederholz, he says in his diary, we were happy to be off these miserable ships and on God's earth, if America was God's earth. So happy to be safe, knew he was lucky, but obviously the captured by the Americans. I also highlighted here the, the fact that there are women and children on these vessels. And I should have mentioned this earlier, of course, that these soldiers that, uh, that were sent over from Germany were accompanied by hundreds and hundreds of civilians hundreds of women and dozens. We don't know exactly the evidence is often anecdotal but a large number of children as well. And here's a record that proves essentially that there are, um, that there were women and children on these vessels. The last document that I want to share is uh, deals with the campaign in West Florida. So uh, between 1778 and 1781, Britain sent, Transports with troops to the south on multiple occasions and by the southern rebellious colonies, including Georgia and Carolinas and Virginia. Each of these transports included German troops. In late 1788, Britain also sent reinforcements to West Florida. There were already uh, British uh, troops stationed there. But uh, Britain was worried about uh, a, a potential French threat. More importantly, worried that potentially Spain might want uh, to try to get West Florida back, and uh, that worry was well founded. That's exactly what happened. So Britain sent troops back, maybe thir- around 1,300. Half of them were German. That is the Waldeck Regiment. The entire Waldeck Regiment had been on Staten Island in garrison for a couple of years uh, identified as you, you know, you go to Pensacola to help defend West Florida from foreign threats. The story of this regiment is, it's just tragic. I mean, there's no other way to put it. The regiment arrives in West Florida, uh, so they're sailing down there, four weeks stopover in Jamaica, which was also described in, in a couple of diaries, they arrive in Pensacola Complaining from the very beginning. It is hot. Um, There is uh, uh, all this critters, vermin around. Many Native Americans, thousands by some of these session accounts, you never know if they're friend or foe. That is a common complaint by German soldiers. So they're Native Americans, some are allies, but you can be sure. And some some Hessians were killed by Native Americans in West Florida during this time period, presumably allies. To make a long story short, Hessians along with British soldiers are sent to the Mississippi to defend a couple of forts, Fort Butte, for example, one after the other, uh, however, they fall to the Spanish. The Spanish are attacking, ultimately put Pensacola under siege and Pensacola surrendered. So it's a very short version of a much more complicated story, of course. When Pensacola surrendered, the regiment had been reduced to about half its size, because mainly because of disease, few men were also killed in combat, and then of course, we also had desertions. So this regiment is one of the officers at at that point says, we have like 250 men left. Again, the strength is more than 700, this is nothing. So it's absolutely miserable. The good news is that Spain agreed to send those people, the soldiers, British and German, that were captured, that had surrendered at at, at Pensacola, to send them back to New York, paying for the transports. So uh, there's actually, the the British officer sends a letter to the ruler of Waldeck, who had been worried about what's going on with my my soldiers. I hear they're like in uh, in the South, this is really unhealthy climate. And ultimately the official in Britain sends a letter basically saying, good news, they're surrendered and they're going back to New York, and they can even fight in the war again. So you should be happy. He really really puts a positive spin on it that they're getting out of this unhealthy uh, uh, province. They, of course, never fought again in the war because this is shortly before uh, before Yorktown and more or less major hostilities ceased after that. The last person, wrapping up in a second, um, the last person that is mentioned on the embarkation list of these German troops on these these Spanish transports going to New York is identified as a black woman. We know nothing about her except that she is a woman, she's black, and she's free. And I wanted to just say a few words about the presence of black men and uh, women and children who were in some ways attached to German military units over the course of the war. Uh, here are a couple of uh, their, their pres- the, the evidence for their presence tends to be anecdotal, but I, we have enough to establish that um, several hundred at one time or another were attached to regiments either formally as drummers or musicians, for example, or maids or servants. Many, of course, also informally in some kind of capacity. Many of these individuals were refu- refugees essentially trying to escape uh, enslavement. Some undoubtedly ended up with the German regiments as what we call plunder. They were seized by their enslavers. Um, Children in particular were um, seized, and in some cases sent back to Germany as gifts over the course of the war. So this is a complicated story for sure. I wanted to show you a couple of documents that uh, serve as evidence for the presence of these um, black individuals in the uh, military. Um, on the left is a, is a master role, this is artillery a company uh, that is in, in Brooklyn at the time, 1781, um, the commander, his name is Poich. Um, he is sending a list of, of individuals that are with them, and you can clearly see that there are four men that are identified as black men, um, three of them are drummers and one is a servant. These regiments, and and Poich himself actually wrote a letter at some point home to his ruler saying that uh, we would like to recruit black men, particularly as musicians, wholly consistent with European ideas of black individuals as exotic and prestigious. These individuals would be dressed in turbans and feathers and colorful outfits to lend prestige to regiments. So Poich himself, advocated for that, and you see evidence here that his own artillery company had at least three black drummers. On the right is a baptismal record from Braunschweig after the war that um, documents the baptism of uh, five black drummers that had been recruited in North America, and obviously it's difficult to read but the, the godfathers, uh, the sponsors, I should say, the sponsors of these individuals are all officers, veterans of the war in North America, including Rit Ezel, who is the commander of all the Brown strike troops in Canada um, and other parts of America during the war. Here is an image um, from a Hessian regiment that, where you can see the depiction of a black drummer, and you can see how he's dressed. Um, So North America, I think the war, in some ways, presented um, at least some of these officers an opportunity opportunity to add black musicians, in particular, to their units. We estimate that around 200 or so um, black um, men, women, and an unknown number of children did go back to Germany with the regiments after the war, and I'm sure there are more. More research needs to be done, but some of these individuals decided, it's complicated, but ultimately, these ended up uh, accompanying the the troops back. So my final slides, just kind of a breakdown. Um, We uh, we, we estimate that maybe 17,000 or so troops survived the war. Um, No, I'm sorry, of the survivors, 17,000 or so returned to Germany, so the majority returned to Germany. Um, We estimate that uh, uh, 1,200 or so were killed in action, Um, and then the main cause of death, of course, was disease, as is typical for 18th century wars, Um, so maybe 6,400 or so died of illness or some kind of accident, drowning, and so forth. Roughly 5,000 decided to Remain in North America or settled in North America. Some of them already got either deserted or got their discharge during the war. So they already settled in North America before 1783. Many did not report for embarkation. They basically just decided to stay back behind. At least half of these actually ended up in Canada. Canada was in a very attractive location, remained British, of course. Britain also offered land grants to um, members of the armies who decided to to go there. So there were incentives created for soldiers, especially Protestants who wanted to settle in Canada. But most of them, about 17,000, ultimately decided to go back. So what do we learn from this when we we look at these kind of records? Um, I think that when we, I looked at these German soldiers as sort of participant observers. They are in the midst of war, of course. They are particip- they're in it, they're in these battles, they write about it, they're in America, they visit uh, all locations, regions from Canada to West Florida. But they're also observers in the sense that they are they are not American, they are not British, they are not, they're not directly involved in the sense that they're, they're not fighting for a cause in that sense. So their observations and descriptions strike, they're not neutral, no one is objective or neutral, but they strike me as, in some cases, particularly helpful in in our efforts to get a sense of what it was like in America during the war, what 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 the land was like, what the culture customs was like, what the people were like. It also draws up regions, I think, that are often neglected, like Canada. Nova Scotia, I didn't mention Nova Scotia, but there's a Hessian regiment in Nova Scotia, for most of the war. And then of course, West Florida and maybe even Jamaica. Um, It also, I think, serves as a a reminder that this was a very violent war. I talk less about the brutality and the violence of the conflict, but I think we need to remember that this is a uh, brutal, uh, long conflict that um, had far-reaching consequences for for Americans and people in other places in in the world. One Hessian officer said, he observed towards the end of the war, that it was a war, in his words, that went against all humanity. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Baird, for that engaging and informative discussion. Uh, we do have a couple uh, questions coming in from online. If anybody in the room has a question, just also please raise your hand and I'll get to you soon. Uh, first question, uh, what kind of training did the new recruits receive and where were they trained?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So they, as I, I said, especially for the first round of, of uh, you know, raising the troops, when the sub- subsidy treaties were signed there was very little time to get them outfitted and basically on this transport into America. So that all had to, in some cases, in three, four weeks, they were raised, recruited, sent off. So there was very little, there was some time, but very little time to get them some basic training at, at, uh, at least before they left. There is, however, plenty of evidence that they did receive some training after their arrival in North America. And I think Canada is a good example. For example, we have, uh, um, the commanders, the British and German commanders offered rewards for shooting practice. So we have records that indicate that the men were encouraged to shoot with live ammunition, target practice, and they got rewards for that. And they were also trained in navigating the rivers. Um, they, re- they were trained to march through formations or to adapt to the terrain and so forth. So there's some training in Germany, if, if at all possible, there's certainly training in North America as well.
2: Great, thank you. Uh, Next question, Um, the bookkeeping is very impressive. Uh, Do these records show how much they were paid per month? This is a multi-part question. Uh, Did they show how much compensation would be paid for a soldier who died in battle? And finally, do you know how much it was in today's money? (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: a really good question. Uh, I can I can tell you that even even the, the people back then who were dealing with this officials in Germany and in Britain and in America are struggling with figuring these things out a lot of the time the numbers are unreliable we're dealing with different currencies uh, you know that's it's very very challenging so I'm hesitant to give you uh, f- f- firm numbers however, Um, we do know how much people were paid. I mean, that's clearly the documents um, in terms of by by rank, for example, obviously there's a a range of of wages. Um, We also know for all of these regiments or all of these units from these six territories, how much individual soldiers set aside to have sent back or uh, sent to their families back home. So the financial records are there, there are, uh, you can you can find out details, but it is um, it's 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 complicated and 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 not always consistent. I would say.
2: Understood. Uh, another question: uh, You mentioned it was Great Britain's war, and that some were sent by their governments. Uh, Do these soldiers abandon their posts at higher rates than British soldiers, especially as mm-hmm. it became apparent that the British would lose?
1: I'm not sure about comparing to British soldiers, um, I, uh, I think it's been established that the rate of desertion was not unusually high, it was not higher than it would have been in any other war during this time period. What you can see uh, when you look at desertion from, uh, you can, I think you can see patterns. Uh, when things, when the are is well equipped, and things are going well, the de- des- desertion rates will be relatively low. They will not be at zero, but they will be relatively low. But then you look at times when there is a, uh, uh, when things are not going well, um, around or after defeats, um, desertion rates tend to go up. And they also, in this case here, go up uh, for soldiers that had lingered captivity for extended periods of time. And that had, I think in some cases, either gotten used to their surroundings, they had made contact with locals, sometimes married local American women that were near their places of internment. And in some cases had given up um, that they would ever be exchanged or or sent out on parole. So there's definitely, you can definitely see patterns um, for desertion.
2: Great, thank you so much. Uh, One question from the audience here. Oh, thank you. Um, the Hessians had um, a reputation, rightly or wrongly, among Americans as um, killing uh, Americans that it, rather than uh, capturing them. How accurate is this uh, this reputation?
1: Yeah. That's a, a great question. Yeah, the, the reputation that, that precedes them almost before they even set foot on American soil, you get um, a lot of what I would call propaganda by um, American um, patriots, as we call them, about, you know, really painting the Hessians as these incredibly violent, brutal invaders, you know, come to pillage our homes and rape our women and, you know, murder innocent civilians. That image emerges already in the spring of 76. As soon as the Americans know Hessians are coming, and they're using this to build up resistance to, first of all, encourage support for independence because independence hadn't been declared yet, but also to mobilize men, in particular, then over the summer and fall of 76, to take up arms to defend their homes against these defenders. So it is sometimes difficult to. Um, determined from all the information that's out there, whether it is describing real experiences, facts, or whether this is embellished or exaggerated and really didn't exactly happen that way. I would say that um, the Haitian plunder, yes, absolutely. Um, Did they commit atrocities and crimes towards civilian population? Absolutely. Um, Did they sometimes deny soldiers quarter, as it's called? I think that happened as well. Um, and I'm not defending it, but I would say it also happened on the, on, on the other side as well. If you ask a German soldier, a German soldier, very, there's a famous letter after the Battle of Brooklyn that was published in a newspaper that basically says the Germans are not giving quarter, meaning they kill a vanquished enemy. And the Hessians say, like, well, if that, that happened, that's because we were told they'll kill us. So we have, in a bat, we have no choice. So that's sort of the rhetoric that you get. There is a lot of violence and atrocity, and, and some of it was certainly perpetrated by, by the German troops, no doubt about it. But there's also a lot of
2: propaganda out there. I hope that. Yes. Very yeah. well, take our. Uh, this will be our last question. Hi okay. there. Um, King George III obviously was part of the Hanover uh, dynasty, yes. and I think he was still an elector of Hanover yes. at the time. So, I'm just curious in terms of the troops from the various regions in Germany, there doesn't seem to be any from Hanover?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um. <laughs> there, there are Hanoverians that uh, support the war, but indirectly. And so, therefore, they're not generally considered to be uh, Hessians in that mm-hmm. sense. Um, there are several thousand Hanoverians that are sent to the Mediterranean where they are relieving British soldiers that are then sent to North America. So they're certainly participating. And you're absolutely right. And he does that because he's the Elector of Hanover and he's using his subjects in this war. Absolutely.
0: All right, that was our last question. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here for our speaker. Thank you to um, our wonderful speaker. That was really interesting about a topic I think we don't often hear too much about. And thank you for all of you for joining us in person and on Zoom for your time supporting the museum, for asking your questions. If you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date with all of our programs, you can join our mailing list by going to francistavernmuseum.org. There you will also find our social media accounts as well as the calendar of upcoming programs. Our next lecture, a bit of a break, some till Thursday, May 18th. Um, at the end of this month, we do have our book award dinner. You can check out that information on our website. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you would like to make a donation, you may also do that on our website. So thank you again for joining us at Francis Tavern Museum and we hope to see you again soon.